0: It's a tough scene to watch, but it's true, and it comes right out of the Gospels. Jesus was spit on, he was uh, hit, he was chastised, he was accused falsely, he was put on trial. Ultimately, he was whipped and beaten and executed, crucified on a cross for the sins of the world. This is the central story of the Christian faith, and no matter how hard it is to watch or maybe even to consider and to ponder and to think about, it's absolutely essential It's absolutely essential for our Christian faith, for our understanding of God. It's absolutely essential for there to be amazing grace, there has to be this story. For there to be God's love for the whole world, there has to be this story. For there to be salvation in the kingdom of heaven, there has to be this story. For there to be new life for us right now, there has to be this story. And the season of Lent is a time for us to do that. So during the season of Lent... As a church at all of our different campuses, we're going to be focusing in on this series of sermons. Lent is a 40 day journey, six and a half weeks. You pull out the Sundays, it's 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. It's a 40 day journey where we're going to look each weekend at the I am statements of Jesus Christ. You saw an example of it there in that movie scene where Jesus is put on trial and he's asked, Are you who people say that you are? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Living God? And Jesus says, I am, which reads pretty powerfully and plays pretty powerfully in English, but we have uh, no sense of it if we just leave it at at, at the English. If we don't go back into the history of Scripture and and the original languages, both the Aramaic that Jesus spoke and the Greek that records it in the Gospels of the New Testament, I am. I am shows up all over John's Gospels, and those are going to be the hangers upon which the hooks upon which we hang our hats for the next uh, several weekends of the season of Lent, each weekend looking at a different I am statement. They, uh, they identify Jesus, and along the way, they renew our faith as we get to know him better. Our theme this year is to know and to be known. We want to get to know God better, we want to get to know one another better as a church family, and we want to be known by this God and by one another. And so during Lent, we want to get to know Jesus Christ better, the identity of this God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Here in John 15 is one example of these I am statements, I highlighted it in red for you here. On the top line is the Greek, the first and the third line, the second and the fourth lines here are a direct literal English translation of each Greek word. One of the things you'll notice here is why our English translations aren't word for word Greek to English because as any of you know who speak different languages, words don't always translate, it's more accurate to go phrase by phrase. So in the Greek, it says this. In the English, it says in John 15, 11, this is Jesus speaking. These things I've spoken to you, literally, that the joy of the my in you I am and the joy of you might be full. Perfectly clear, right? <laughs> kind of choppy, to say the least. But as we learn a little bit more about Biblical Greek, we quickly start to understand that the way this flows in English, accurately, phrase by phrase, is Jesus saying, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be full or complete. But then there's this highlighted in red, single letter Greek biblical word. And it's pronounced a, everyone say a, a. 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 You might say, well, it's repeated over here and it looks like it's a different translation. It's, it's the same Ada, that's the Greek letter, here and here and here in this verse. But it's translated the in all of those places. Why is it translated I am here? It's because it's a totally different word. Doesn't look like it in the Greek, but if you look really close, I mean, this is fine-tuned Greek. Up here is the little apostrophe above the eta, the one-letter Greek word. That's called a, uh, a, a rough uh, uh, breath. And so the rough breath on the eta in biblical Greek is pronounced hey. Everyone say hey. You're a little Fonzie in you. So hey, you know what hey means? This is what my Greek teacher in seminary taught me. Hey means just get to the next word. (laughs) Basically, hey, here we go. The next word's coming. So it's the joy, the my joy, the joy again. So it's, it's a definitive article. This is not a rough breath apostrophe. This is a smooth breath apostrophe above the eta, the one-letter Greek word. And it's not pronounced hey, that's rough breath. It's pronounced "a" hey, smooth breath, into the eta. Totally different word, and this word means I am. In another uh, tense of the Greek verb, it can be said as ego eimi, Ego me is that statement that's repeated, or a, is repeated over and over in John's gospel when it says, I am. You say, well, that's not too fascinating at all. Why are you telling us all this? What is this, Greek seminary? No, I'm telling you this for a reason, because this I am makes no sense in here, even in Greek. Take a look at this again. These things I've spoken to you, Jesus says, so that my joy would be in you, and that your joy would be full. I am in the middle of it. Why is this I am Greek word placed right in the middle of this verse? Add to that, I feel like I'm selling Ginsu knives for a second, but wait, there's more. Not only do you get this smooth Ada, A, you also get this little lovely tidbit of uh, John 15, that's the chapter that's over there on the screen that you saw before. And it goes like this, verse seven, Verse 7, verse 8, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. And then we have the famous verse 11 here, which is all about joy. And for reference, let's go back here, see? Joy, joy, I came to put my joy in you and that joy would be full. That's Jesus saying it to us. That's what he wants for us, joy. But it has the source of that joy, which is the I am. <laughs> the I am. Jesus says I am. To make it even more interesting, watch the numbers, this is where the fun comes in. There's the 13 and 15, then there's three 16s, and a 17. And these are direct parallels across the board in John 15. Oops, I missed one. Seven, seven, eight, eight, nine, nine, and 10. Okay, so there we go. So they're all there. Up here in John 15:7, the word is word or command. And it's repeated in 7 and 17. Same verse, verse 7, Jesus uses the word ask. It's repeated in verse 16. Then he goes to the word fruit. It's repeated from eight, verse 8 to verse 16. Then he goes to father from verse 8 to verse 16 again. And on and on it goes. The word love comes and it's repeated again on the way down to this verse, verse 11, and on the way out of this verse in verse 11. And finally we get the word command again at the bottom. Dr. Raymond Brown, who wrote the definitive commentary on the Gospel of John, a two-volume set that's about this thick, says, at a certain point you look at things like this and you say, this is the imagination of the interpreter. But he says, then at a certain point, you pass through that and you realize, just objectively, the chances that these words would show up in perfect sequence on the way down to the joy in the original Greek, on on the way out of the joy in the original Greek, and at the core of that key verse on joy is this phrase, A, which is Jesus saying, I am. You have to, at a certain point, Dr. Brown persuasively argues, say that this isn't coincidental. This is literature on a level that goes beyond Shakespeare. This is the kind of stuff that John's Gospel is full of. In our chapter, our Bible reading for today, John chapter 6, you can take verses 35 to 50, go home and do this, it's kind of fun, and then take verses 51 to 58 and notice all the uncanny parallels between them and the repetition of the verses, the emphasis that God is making through the pen of John's Gospel to draw our attention to something. Same thing in John chapter 4, which those of you who know your Bibles really well know that it contains the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and in John chapter 6 again, our reading for today, there are these parallels. In John chapter 4, Jesus shows up at the well, and the Samaritan woman there says, "Uh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Don't you know about our traditions? You seem to be off, Jesus. What's wrong with you? We have these religious traditions. And Jesus responds, says, if you only knew who it was who was offering, who was asking you for this water, you would ask me to give you a drink because I have the water of life for you. Sir, she says, give me this water so I'll never be thirsty again. John chapter 6, exact same pattern. Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and the crowds say, who do you think you are? Don't you know we have this religious tradition? And Jesus says, if you knew who it was who was standing before you right now, you'd ask me to give you the bread of life because that's what I am. I am the bread of life, and if I give you this bread of life, you'll never be hungry again. And so the crowd says, sir, same exact word in the Greek, that the woman at the well said in John chapter 4, Sir, give us this food always so we'll never be hungry again. And that's when Jesus says, next verse, John 6, verse 35, I am, A, A, go A, me. I am the bread of life. I am, he'll say later, the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine and you are the branches. I am the resurrection and the life. We think so much of that one, we engraved it in original Greek over on the wall by the cross to remind us that Jesus is the great I am. But wait, there's more. Jesus wasn't just saying, this is who I am so you can identify and define me. He was saying so much more because if we know a little bit about the central story of the Old Testament, the Exodus, we know that when God showed up in the burning bush to Moses and Moses objected objected to the call, Moses is like, I'm too old, I'm 80 years old, I'm not eloquent, send somebody else, come on, don't you know, and then he says finally, well, what's your name? I I don't even know what, which kind of God are you? What God are you? And God responds in the burning bush to Moses and says, my name is Yahweh in the Hebrew. In English, translated from Yahweh, guess what? I am. Everyone say, I am. That's God's name. I am. I am, I always was, and I always will be. I am timeless, I am eternal. I have all the power, I have eternity in my hands, I am. There isn't anything that I am not a part of that creation. I am. Tell him I am has sent you. So, when Jesus is put on trial, as you saw in the opening clip, and he's asked, are you the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of the living God? When he says, hey, the crowd was wildly offended. Because Jesus just claimed to be God. Jesus just called himself the same thing God called himself in the burning bush to Moses. Jesus just equated himself with the creator of the universe. Jesus didn't just say, I'm his son. Jesus said, I'm him. I'm God in the flesh. I am. Later, the Bible will say the fullness of everything that God is, God's deity, God's holiness, dwells bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. I am is standing here before you, Jesus is saying to the accusers, to the crowd, to everybody around him, to the crowd in John chapter 6 when he says, I am the bread of life. He's not just saying that sort of defines how essential I am. He's saying, God and I are the same. The same God who showed up and announced his name for Moses, I'm telling you, that's my name, Jesus is saying. And The Bible puts it all together in John's gospel highlighting it with a word that's sort of hidden in the midst of this verse that pops out, if you know the biblical Greek, and shouts at us, particularly when we realize how everything points to it and points away from it in the Greek in this parallel sort of way. The kind of brilliant literature that you look at and you say, God must have written that. And he did. It's so beautiful. It's so deep. I still remember when I was in seminary First-year student, the older students, the second, third, and fourth-year students at the seminary would tell us, first-year students, wait until you get Dr. Lindbergh. He's the best. His his Old Testament lectures are just stunning. They'll just just blow you away. So among other things, we're waiting for the next year to come so that we can take Dr. Lindbergh's Old Testament classes. He was an articulate, great communicator, a poet. He would teach the Psalms, which are poetry. He'd teach the Torah of the Old Testament, the first five books. He'd teach some Hebrew. He'd teach some preaching. Dr. Lindbergh had this great reputation amongst the student body at the seminary. Wait until you're a second-year student. You get to take Dr. Lindbergh's classes, and you get to hear his lectures. So I'm all excited. I sign up for a class with Dr. Lindbergh in the Old Testament. I come, and he starts lecturing. And after the first week, I have to tell you, I was completely underwhelmed (laughs) i thought really he's kind of been overhyped i think it's a bit much i mean yeah he's good it's great but maybe because my expectations were so high it's like he's a good teacher he's a good communicator i understand i i get it but i don't think he stands out from anybody else i've ever had in seminary or college or high school even the good teachers i i don't get it i don't understand And then I had to hand in my first paper, and I never will forget it, because it was about the first week of lectures on the central story of the Old Testament, the Exodus, and specifically we were to write on the bread from heaven, the manna from heaven. And if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you already know that story. If you don't, the bread from heaven is kind of like Norwegian kringla. It was this glorious, delicious uh, gift that just came raining down from the heavens above. If you've never had, Kring- had Kringland and been underwhelmed, I'm sorry, but to me, it's just, it's heaven. In the biblical story, it's a bigger deal because God's people are starving to death out in the wilderness with Moses after they crossed the Red Sea. And so God provides. God hears the prayers of his people and he rains down bread from heaven, this manna from heaven. So I wrote my first seminary paper for Dr. Lindbergh about this, and I tried to be as scholarly as I possibly could. I, I looked at the, the exegesis, the biblical interpretation, things like this, but Old Testament. I looked at the Hebrew, the original languages. I read all the commentaries. I put it all together. I, I put this paper together. I handed it in. A few days later, red pen. I know. And Dr. Lindbergh wrote this on my paper, and I'll never forget it. Life-changing moment for me. He put, I'm just gonna spell it all out for you, it was short, yes, but what do you, capital Y-O-U, believe? Underline you. What Dr. Lindbergh was saying, Fantastic. Well done on the scholarship. Yes, you got all that right. But what I really want to know is what do you believe? Not just a synthesis of all the commentators and all the, the scholarship and everything in history and the context and everything that's out there. I want to know what you believe. I want to know what you think about the manna from heaven. I want, you to, I want to know what's in your heart about that. What do you believe? Where did it come from? Who is it? Not just what does everybody else say, what about you? Halfway through his ministry, Jesus stops his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? They're like, oh, well, you know, some say you're like John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the great prophets. And then Jesus says, but what do you believe? Yes, but what do you believe? What do you believe about me? What do, you be- do you believe that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Do you believe that I'm the way, the truth, and the life? Do you believe I'm the bread from heaven? Do you believe? That's the most important question you will ever be asked. And I got that from Dr. Lindbergh. And I'm sharing it with you today because this Lent, I want you to ponder it maybe for the first time or maybe again, to introduce you to the faith and this journey with Jesus Christ or to renew this faith that you have and deepen it. Because all of this is really important. Because the more we know, the more we can grow. No doubt about it, this is why Bible study can be so fun. Because it can open up our minds to new understandings of the depth and and, and the glorious nature of God's word and the significance of it, and, and, and the beauty of the literary beauty of it. Fine, Dr. Lindbergh was saying. Nice exegesis, nice hermeneutics, nice interpretation, not, not, nice digging into all this, but what do you believe? And the way Jesus approaches the crowd in John chapter six, he's asking the same question. Fine, you're, you're looking for all these things. You're, you're, you've got a religious resume. You have position. You're Pharisees or your Sadducees or you're members of the Sanhedrin, or the chief priests. Great, good for you. You're, you're a synagogue rabbi. You're, you're on the parking lot attendance committee. Praise God for them. You, 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 you volunteer. You serve. You teach in the Hope Kids Sunday School. Fantastic, great. But what I really want to know is what do you believe? What's in your heart at hearts about this? After the 8 o'clock service this morning, a woman came up to me, kind of sheepish, and she said, do you know what the, I hope this is right, do you know what the sign language is for the word believe? Oh, please let this be right. She said, this, yes, oh, and praise God for her too and for our sign language folks, that's awesome. Can, Can you do that again? Belief goes here to here, from the head to the hands and through the heart. What do you believe? Not just, what do you know? And, and, and Do you know the books of the Bible by memory? Do you have Bible verses down pat? Do, do you know the different theologies of all the, the, the top podcasts of the Christian preachers and teachers that are out there? And can you subtly make distinctions between their theology and, and, and line it all up? And, and do you know? Do you know all these things? Do you have this understanding about great, good, it'll help. It's not either or. This can help your belief. Absolutely. The more you know about this, the stronger this can become, but this is the big question. This is the thing, this is the essential. The bread of life wants to know, what do you believe about this? Watch the way the interaction goes in John chapter 6, follow along if you have your Bibles. The crowd comes to Jesus and they look at him and they say, hey Jesus, show us a sign That you're really who people say you are. That you're the Messiah we've been waiting for, the anointed one of God. Jesus has to be a little offended by the question because at the beginning of this chapter, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And right after he fed the thousands, he also walked on water. And then he gets off of the boat, after walking on the water, after feeding 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish, and people come up to him and say, could you prove yourself to us? Could you give us some sort of evidence, you know, that you're really the Messiah, the Son of God? Is there something that you could do so that, you know, we could believe? I don't know about you, but I think I would say, you've got to be kidding me. Didn't you see what I just did? Weren't you there? Aren't you the same crowd that was there just the other day when I was feeding the thousands with just a little, like five filet of fish sandwiches? Did you see what I did? Did you see that there were 12 buckets of food left over, one for every tribe of Israel? Did you see that? You want a sign? That's what I would have said. Jesus was calm. It's like, oh, gentle teaching moment. Here's what I'd like you to know. You're looking for a sign. You're looking for a miracle. You're looking for spiritual goosebumps. You're looking for inspiration. You're looking for a Jesus who's comfortable for you. You're looking for a Jesus who fits your traditions. You're looking for a Jesus who fits the piety you grew up with and sounds like the Jesus you met in the church you grew up in. You're looking for a Jesus who fits your comfort zones. You're looking for a Jesus who conforms to this culture and goes with the latest Gallup polls. And and you get a little worried if he doesn't because you think, oh, Jesus, what's going to happen to you if you don't fit in with this culture? And Jesus is losing no sleep over that. We're tempted to want a Jesus who fits our preconceived notions. We want make me rich and famous Jesus. That's a popular one these days. Prosperity Jesus. If I just get a little more Jesus, then I'll be richer. If I just get a little more Jesus, I'll be more famous. If I get a little more Jesus, my handicap on the golf course will go down. If I get a little more Jesus, I'll get promoted. If I get a little more Jesus, I'll make the tournament traveling team as a kid. If I, or my kid will, that's really the pressure, right? If I get a little more Jesus, then I'll get rewarded. As if Jesus was a means to an end. Instead of the end and the beginning and the middle and everything in between. We forget that he's the great I am. The one who is, was, and always will be. That he has the power to change everything in us. But we look for the Jesus who wants to bless our sin or our self-centered attitudes or the way we see the world. Instead of the Jesus who challenges us and says, I didn't come to conform to you, I came to conform you to your creator. I came to put you on a pathway that's gonna lead to the cross where as uncomfortable as it is, you're going to receive new life there in a place and in a way that you can't get it anywhere else and from anyone else. Follow me, Jesus says, for I am the bread of life. And if you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry again. If you eat this bread, which we're about to get a sign of in the sacrament of Holy Communion, if you receive this bread of life, it's not the bread that does this, it's believing in Jesus. The people came and said, well, tell us what works we have to do. Tell us what we have to do in order to get right with God. And Jesus says, just believe. We underestimate belief. We're like, oh, just believe. Well, uh, it'd be harder if Jesus made us do all these things. Actually, if we believe, we're going to do all these things. If we believe, it is going to transform us. And if we don't believe, the transformation's going to be empty, incomplete, and most likely temporary. Have you figured that part out yet? When you try to change your life on your own, apart from Jesus Christ, ask the 10% of our church that's in recovery from addictive behaviors. How many times they tried to change that behavior just by doing the right thing and maybe God could come and bless it. Ask them where the transformation happened. It's when they start to believe. It's when they start to trust that there's a power that's higher than them, that's greater than them, that's stronger than them, that has the will to do what they don't have the will to do. It's transformational. And we see it here in in Iowa and we see it across the world. When people encounter not the Jesus we invent, the soft and comfortable and easy Jesus, but the Jesus who is, the Jesus who leads us to the blood of the cross, the Jesus who dies as a sacrifice for our sin, that Jesus can transform your life. That Jesus can turn your world right side up. That Jesus can bless you with a life that is eternal. That Jesus can open the door to heaven for you. The problem with believing in a made-up Jesus is A, he isn't real, and two, I've always wanted to do that, A and two, and B, A, he isn't real, and B, since he isn't real, he has no power to do anything for you. The made up Jesus can't get you to heaven. The made up Jesus can't change your life. The made up Jesus can't set you free from addiction. The made up Jesus can't bless you with new life. The made up Jesus can't give you amazing grace. The made up Jesus can't forgive your sins. The made up Jesus can't do any of these things. So come and meet the I am Jesus. Come and meet the one who is, was, and always will be. The Jesus who's revealed in the scriptures. No matter how tempting it is to make up your own religion and invent your own spirituality, which feels good. There's a problem with that. There's no life in it in the long run. It feels good for a little while, and it seems, wow, like this is what I've always needed. No, the one thing you need is the bread of life, the essential. When I was a kid, my dad got on all these kicks. <laughs> and Not just when I was a kid, he got in kicks his whole life. He, He was passionate about life. My mom was kind of the steady rock of the family. My dad was the colorful entertainment in the family. And my dad would... For instance, he got on a kick once where he wanted to jog. He turned 40 and I think he was having some health concerns and so he said, I'm gonna become a jogger. Not only did he become a jogger, he couldn't do anything halfway. He dove all in, he got all the jogging clothes, he had five different pairs of the best jogging shoes, he subscribed to Runner's World Magazine, he made us watch marathons on TV, he talked about the burn, he talked about the buzz afterward, he talked about the whole thing, oh, there it is, woo! I mean, my dad was very entertaining. (laughs) <laughs> but some of you are like, that explains a lot. <laughs> and then three months later, he quit that kick and got fat. So then <laughs> he got into a new phase, which was his motorhome phase. His motorhome phase, don't be too impressed. It wasn't $100,000 motorhome, you know, the nice rigs. It was Clark Griswold's cousin Eddie's motorhome. I mean, it was the, the thing that barely rolls and gets to the front door of the house. Motorhome. I mean, this thing, I it it would break down every camping trip he and my mom would take. It would break down every single time, and he'd call me like, "Ah, oh, I think uh, you know we're stuck," <laughs> and then he sold the motorhome, and then he got on a bread making kick. He was the French chef of the householder household. He had the bib that says, I make the dough, get it? I mean, he, you know, I make some money. <laughs> and he had the hat, and he had, he had the, the recipe books, and, and he studied, say, well, we're not gonna buy our bread from a store in a, wrapped in a plastic bag anymore. We're gonna make our bread from what God has created. And he made it this big spiritual thing, and we're gonna get all the ingredients, and we're gonna put them all together, which is great, and it's fine if you know what you're doing. (laughs) My dad looked the part of the great classic bread maker, but he had no idea how to actually make the bread. He would make the bread and then he'd make us eat it. (laughs) And I thought we'd have to call poison control a couple of times afterward. I mean, it would be gooey or it would be so dry and crusty. It was just this, it was awful. Christians sometimes... Uh, And he got off the bread maker thing, put it on the shelf, and then went on to something else. Sometimes, I think that was his video camera phase, back when the video camera was one piece and then you put one over your shoulder and then carried the VCR with you. Yeah, he did that at all of my school events. It wasn't embarrassing at all. But we we have this picture as Christians. We think, well, I have to play the part. I have to get the, t- the, the T-shirt, Jesus, you know, my boss was a Jewish carpenter and the bumper sticker to match and, and we, we play the part and, and we look the part and we try to, try to, I don't know, fool ourselves into thinking we've arrived. Do you ever get tempted to do that? Here's the refreshing good news. Jesus, the one we worship, our salvation, our hope, The real Jesus, the I am Jesus comes and he says, just believe in me. That's what I really need. Because if you believe in me, all those other things are going to change anyway. You're going to be transformed. You're going to see your friends in a different way and your enemies in a different way. You're going to see God's grace for you as something that you're supposed to share with other people, not because you feel like you have to do it, but because you get to do it. You're gonna to wanna to serve, you're gonna to wanna to join a life group. You're gonna say, sign me up for the group launch that's coming up next week here at Hope so I can get into a small group, so I can know and be known. I get it, it's not, I should do this, I ought to do this, I gotta do this, it's because I believe, of course I'm gonna do it. It becomes who I am. The transformation doesn't happen without the faith. So yes, you know all these Christian things, but what do you really believe? What's in your heart of hearts? That's the question we'll be looking at this Lent. Jesus says, anyone who believes has eternal life. And yes, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am. So we don't say, hey, everybody, give an offering for the building of new churches in Ghana because, gee, that's just a really nice thing to do. We say because of who we are and because we're connected to the one who is the I am, who is the source of our joy and our new life and our salvation and the one who opens the gate to eternal life in heaven for us, because we don't want to just be selfishly the kind of people that keep that for ourselves, because we've been inspired by this grace, we want other people we haven't even met, most of us, to experience this same grace. And so we'll keep building churches in Ghana, and we'll keep building more. And the most amazing thing is, is one of these churches, I mean it's a pretty simple structure obviously, the cost of this church, the construction of an entire church from beginning to end in Ghana, West Africa, is $4,000. Some of you could build a church before you go home today, by dropping an offering into one of those buckets. You could build a whole church, and you say, well what difference is it going to make? Look at all the people in this church. You put the 445 churches, or however many it's been, that Hope has built in Ghana over the last several years, and there are over 40,000 people who showed up to worship Jesus Christ today in Ghana, West Africa, in those churches that we've built. Those are churches that were built in villages that never have seen a church. These are parts of planet Earth that have never seen Christianity have never been exposed to the one who is the great I am. You are making a massive impact and you will have eternity. We will have eternity to celebrate this salvation in the kingdom of heaven because once we get there, we'll look around and we'll say, oh my goodness, there's so many more people here from Africa than there are from Iowa because of Lutheran Church of Hope, because of what God has done through us for the world around us. Look at all these people who are here forever. Forever. Look at all these people who are here for eternity because they got to know the one who is the great I am like we did here in Iowa. Last week at Hope we had 12,000 people show up for worship in Iowa. Biggest number we've ever had in the history of Hope in our, our five campuses here. You can praise God for that too. God is on the move. I get so excited I throw Bibles around. And that's not counting the kids in Sunday school or the the growing number of people who are watching online. Hello, everybody online. God is on the move. And it isn't because, you know, our style. It's because of the substance of Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, all of that stuff can be good. All of the religious things we do can be good, because the more we know, the more we can grow, but what do you believe? Once Dr. Lindbergh asked me this question, I mean it changed my whole view on this. I, all of a sudden I'm like, man, if his lecture's gotten a lot better or what? You're like, no, it's the same. It's just you. You're into it now. You're all in. You're not just doing it as a religious exercise anymore to be a seminary student and to learn a bunch of stuff. You're doing it as a believer. It's not that I didn't believe before, but now I'm all in. What do you believe? What do you believe about this Jesus? Because that's the power to change your life, to turn things right side up, to align things in a way they've never been aligned before. To inspire you to do things you never thought you'd do before. To go out and be followers of Jesus Christ who are not perfect people and don't have to know it all. But who've got a lot of this. A lot of belief. A lot of trust. A lot of faith. Because that changes everything. Forever. Anyone who believes this, Jesus says, has eternal life. Yes, I am a... The bread of life, more than you need anything else, more than you need your kid to make that traveling team, more than you need the promotion at work, more than you need the dream house, more than you need the Griswold motor home, you need Jesus, and so do I. And when we get that right, well, then we find our step, and when we find our step, Everything changes for the better and forever.